On November 15, 1986, a record spearheaded by an up-and-coming producer named Rick Rubin was released by Def Jam and Columbia Records. Now, there is no question that Run DMC had laid the foundation for what was to come. But it was three Jewish white kids from the Bronx, known as the Beastie Boys, that changed everything musically, culturally, with the debut of their very first studio album, Licensed to Ill, would not only become the first rap LP to top the billboards, but it sent a shockwave throughout the American landscape that's still being felt today. Because of the Beastie Boys, a culture that had been largely associated with the inner city black community would make its leap into the suburbs. Rap would go mainstream. It would move into middle America. And a famous twist to James Bond's quip that 007 had a license to kill In License to Ill, the Beastie Boys crafted an album that was on one hand lighthearted and fun, while at the same time specifically written to mock the establishment, to challenge the status quo. Those songs like Brass Monkey, Girls, or No Sleep Till Brooklyn, songs you would have never thought would have been referenced at church, while these songs would garner radio play across the world, It would be the seventh song on the album that would eventually become an anthem for a generation. You see, for the first wave of teenagers seeking to rebel against parents, by the way, parents who had been directly influenced by the cultural revolution of the 1960s, the catchy hook to the seventh famous song, you got to fight for your right to party. Thank you, Bethany. I appreciate that. It became a bit of a rallying cry for this generation. The Beastie Boys were loud. They were crude, funny, light, oddly ironic, in your face. They were superficial, but deeply satirical. In many ways, the Beastie Boys, their album License to Ill, and the hit Fight for Your Right perfectly typified Generation X. Sadly, though, A license to ill is how many people view the amazing grace of God. With the defense of such a radical idea, no more than being relegated to a fight for your right to party. Again, it's tragic, but the incredible liberty that we've been given in Jesus, in his permanent work on the cross, has gotten twisted in so many ways into being a license for people to just do whatever they want free of penalty. Author Kyle Strobel recently tweeted, and I could not agree more with this. He says, in evangelical circles, we've been so afraid of the heresy of Galatia, that being legalism, that we've backed into the sin of Corinth, which was carnality, without even noticing it. You see, friends, in our attempt to defend the freeing nature of grace, sometimes we've used that freedom to justify sinfulness. Have you ever encountered such a person? A Christian who intentionally uses the grace and the goodness of Jesus to justify sinful decisions. Have you ever crossed paths with a fellow believer who pointed to grace in order to minimize the effects of, let's say, an extramarital affair. I have. 
Have you ever encountered an individual who saw God's grace as a means to excuse away an addiction? Whether it be alcohol abuse, pornography, licentiousness. Literally, have you ever had a Christian friend who used God's grace to fight for their right to party? In a more personal application, have you ever found yourself falling back on grace as a means to temper your own depravity and or excuse a bad behavior? Like like in the moment of a conviction designed by God to lead you back to a point of repentance, a place known as the cross, you instead convince yourself in the moment of conviction that such a feeling is actually the condemnation of the devil and should be ignored. Have you ever been lovingly called out by someone who cared for you and you deflected any guilt by accusing that person of being legalistic? Let me give you an example. In a recent episode this summer of ABC's hit show, The Bachelorette, I don't watch it, I've just heard a lot about it, The Bachelorette, Hannah Brown, who herself, by the way, claims to be a Christian, she confesses to another one of the contestants who's also a Christian, a man by the name of Luke Parker, that she had had sex with some of the other contestants and that she didn't see anything particularly wrong about it. Now, Regardless of how you feel about Mr. Parker, my sister-in-law tells me he was quite a jerk. When he challenged Hannah on the cavalier and unremorseful way in which she spoke about premarital sex, Hannah proceeds to justify herself saying the following. This is a quote. Regardless of anything I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed. And if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no other man or woman can judge me. Now, while her response to being called out is wrong on many different levels, which we'll get to later in the Bible study, sadly, the online reaction to that particular episode, and more importantly, her quote, reveals that more people, more Christians than not, actually share Hannah's perspective. Theologically, this, what I call, grace so I can do anything, distortion of the gospel message, it tends to manifest from a belief that since a person is saved and sanctified by a work that occurs independent of themselves, there ends up by just definition being now no restrictions to the things they can and cannot do. In many ways, the grace so I can do anything distortion turns Jesus' incredible love into a license just to live any way you choose. Now, while that perspective is misguided, if we're being fair this morning, there is a measure of logic to the position. If you argue a person's good deeds have no role at all in their salvation or their sanctification, this process of becoming more like Jesus, then you must concede their sinful deeds have no effect to the contrary. You see, for the license to ill crowd, the unmerited favor of God in place of sin, we call that grace. Coupled with Jesus' complete and total forgiveness concerning sin, we call that salvation, ends up being viewed as an unrestricted permit to sin, to do whatever I want. Instead of grace yielding holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness, as He intended, 
as he designed grace to accomplish. Like Hannah, there are many people that see grace as just a license for whatever goes. At Calvary 3.16, there is no question that we champion the grace of God, that we defend her passionately, that we've taken a lot of flack for that. Apart from grace, I mean, what else is there? It's the most radical, revolutionary idea on the planet. The, the notion, the idea that my relationship with God is founded upon a work that God did for me on the cross and not one I must do for Him, well, that's the one idea that literally changes everything. Which is why it's worth a passionate defense from those who would legalistically try to distort it by adding additional things to do, grace and do these things, or adding things to refrain from doing grace, but don't do these things. And yet, heaven forbid, friends, that we bastardize a defense of grace as being nothing more than a, than a fight for our right to party. The grace so I can do anything perspective, it makes a mockery of the cross. And ultimately it distorts the power and the transformation that God's grace affords. You see, Calvary 3.16, we're not a grace place because we want to drink. That's not why we're a grace place. We don't defend grace because, well, most of us like watching Game of Thrones. You see, grace, friend, it's really not about your rights at all. We defend grace not for the behaviors it allows, but for how grace fundamentally transforms our behaviors. I'll repeat that line because it's important. We defend grace not for the behaviors it allows, but for how grace fundamentally transforms our behaviors. This morning, I want to unpack how viewing God's grace as a license to ill completely misses the point. And here's why. It doesn't factor in what grace intends to accomplish. Now, to set the stage for this, I need to take you back to the beginning. Literally, in the beginning. The very beginning. See, back in Eden, God gave Adam a garden. He gave him a garden to enjoy, with a babe to enjoy it with. They could have fun with everything, except for one piece of fruit that hung on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one thing they were not supposed to have anything to do with. In Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17, we're told that the Lord took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend, to keep it. The Lord commanded man, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat freedom, freedom. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for the day of you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, as the story goes, it doesn't take long for Adam and his wife, Eve, to disobey God and reap the consequences that God had been very clear about from the beginning. From man's rebellion, from the fall, this cancer of sin it rooted itself into the creation of God, meaning nothing would ever operate again according to that original design. Three things immediately resulted. First, humanity was instantly separated from God. As a swift consequence of sin, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They run and they hide themselves from God before then God ultimately expels them from the garden. 
Because human rebellion demanded God's wrath. Not only had God told them, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, but Romans 6.23 affirms the wages of sin is what? It's death. Because of sin, man would be separated from the holy presence of God. To enter into the holy presence of God in such a sinful state would have resulted in certain immediate death. So the first thing we see because of sin is man is separated from God. Secondly, humanity then finds itself in perpetual conflict with one another. You know, because every person, within every person, this sense of self was stirred to life on the account of sin, man's primary focus, more often than not, gets relegated to the me, myself, and I, that unholy trinity of you, as opposed to others. You're self-centered and not others-focused because of sin. All humanity shares one common trait, regardless of where you live, where you grow up, what your skin color is, what language you speak, what part of the globe you live in. One thing we all have in common, we're selfish. We love self. Case in point, if we were to take a picture of the sanctuary, you're going to judge that picture not on how everyone else looks, but on one thing alone, how you look. You don't look good, that picture's garbage. If you look great, but everyone else looks goofy, that picture's awesome. Babies. You know, you don't have to teach babies how to be selfish. You're going to teach them a lot of things. Selfishness, not one of them. I've had three babies, one now. I mean, babies never take into consideration the feelings of their mother. How tired she is, how burnt out she is, how worn out she is. When they want to eat, they demand it. They poop in their britches, they don't want to clean it up. They demand you clean it up. No consideration for mom. They want to sleep. They let you know it. They don't want to sleep. They let you know it. I mean, babies, you do, have you ever noticed you don't have to teach a kid how to lie? It's, it's, it's instinctive. And it's because of sin. Like Consider that in less than a half a chapter, chapter and a half in Genesis, following the introduction of sin to the human condition, what do we see? We see blame instead of personal responsibility, right? Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. We see envy in the place of love. Good grief. We see cold-blooded murder between the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. Because of this sin nature within man, the, the awakening of self, humanity has never gotten along. Thirdly, finally, because of sin, all creation ceased operating as it was originally designed, most notably you and me, man. Not only would creation rebel against the dominion of man charged with her care and stewardship. We see this in, in God cursing the earth, handing out the curses. He says, he says to Adam, no longer will the earth yield as it was designed. Instead, you're going to get thorns, you're going to get thistles. It's going to be labor, man. It's going to be hard. You're rebelling against me, creation will rebel against you. So creation rebels against man. But beyond all of these things, as a fallen, in a fallen state, man himself became irrevocably broken. In Genesis 3, verse 7, upon eating the forbidden fruit, we're told that the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened. Something happens immediately. They see the world differently. And they knew there was now a knowledge that they were naked, that there was something wrong, something off, 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, which didn't work. While their existence had been originally God-centric and others-focused, sin resulted in this new self-awareness. Now, I bring this up to illustrate what regeneration and ultimately God's grace accomplishes in our lives because in many ways it reverses these three effects of sin. Very quickly, first, since God's righteous wrath towards sin was satisfied by Jesus on the cross, you and I no longer need to remain separated. We don't have to be separated from God any longer. We can re-enter the garden and have communion and fellowship with our Creator. So the separation, we find reconciliation. Secondly, because we're now right with God, we're finally able to love each other, to love our fellow man. In Galatians, in Paul's defense of grace, he would write in verse 14 of chapter 5, he says, For all the law is fulfilled or, or carried into effect in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't miss this. A love for people is the natural manifestation in the life of a person who's experienced God's love for them. Finally, because we're now reconciled with our Creator through the amazing grace of God, His work, not mine, as God's creation, we can operate as we, are, we were originally created to operate, as we were designed. The Apostle Paul would pin in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says, therefore, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, if you've experienced this grace, this regeneration, this filling, this salvation, if you're in Christ Jesus, this is what happens. He says he or she is now a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. You see, that, my friend, is what grace is all about. God's grace isn't about giving you new rights. It's about making you right. And there is a difference. Grace is not a license to ill, but the mechanism to make you well. This is why after four chapters of passionately defending and explaining the true nature of God's grace. Galatians is indeed Paul's fighting epistles. The gloves come off. He's in a bare-knuckle brawl. Four chapters, chapters of this, four and a half, but then you get to verse 16 of chapter 5, which is where we are this morning, and Paul kind of sums all of it up this way. He says, I say then, it's this declaration, all this stuff about grace, I say then to you who've experienced it, who know it, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, the purpose of grace, and don't miss it, according to Paul here, the whole point of it, isn't to free you to pursue the lusts of the flesh or to do the things that you wish to do. The purpose of grace instead is to enable you finally to walk in the Spirit of God. Now, to, to grasp what grace yields and why this license to ill perspective 
is so off. It's important we first define what Paul is referring to in this passage when he mentions the flesh. For starters, I think it's safe to say we all know what Paul's referencing from kind of an experiential level. That tension in you, the war that rages between the flesh and the spirit. We all sense it as Christians, right? I want to do these things. I don't want to do these things. But man, it's really hard. The things I want to do, man, I struggle to do. The things I don't want to do, man, it's very... I do those things, right? This tension. I want to follow Jesus, but man, there's this pull, this war, this battle. We understand it. There is a magnetic pull to do things I don't want to do. But but what becomes problematic when we discuss this conflict is the quantifying of the two things that are actually in conflict. Now, we understand, and I don't think it takes a lot of expose, to define what Paul means when he says the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, capital S. This is the Holy Spirit, the the third person of the triune nature of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. But things become hazy when defining this battle when you seek to define what Paul means when he talks about the flesh. What is the flesh? That struggle to define these things have actually led many pastors to try to define them illustratively. I'll give you just one example. Warren Wiersbe, who I absolutely love, he falls flat on this. Because he'll, he'll set up this, this perspective, this fight, the flesh and the spirit. He'll say, there's this, this white dog, the spirit. And then there's the black dog, the flesh. And these two dogs, well, they're always fighting. And whoever, whatever dog you feed more of, you know, gets stronger. If you deprive the other, it gets weaker. And that's how this battle, how we gain victory, feeding and withholding, is very legalistic and it's flat out wrong. Regrettably, even more pastors make the mistake in in trying to define this by regurgitating unhelpful platitudes. Things like the flesh being that fallen nature within. No, it's not. The Bible doesn't say that. Or how about this one? The flesh is the traitor inside all of us. What does that mean? Here's the problem with illustrations and antidotes and why they often lend to more confusion than clarity. If as the Bible says the old man has been reckoned dead, is no longer alive, then how can something that's dead wage a war with the Holy Spirit with so much veracity? It's not a white dog and a black dog. The black dog is dead, so how is it fighting? Since there is this obvious tension We struggle trying to understand, well, what, you know, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ, right? but, But what in me has been crucified? Like what's been nailed to Christ? What's dead? In order to define the flesh, and again, this is all going to a point, but it's important you understand these ideas. To know what the flesh is, it's important to know what you are, like to define you. You know, the Bible presents the fullness of humanity fullness of an individual, as being a trichotomy or a triune nature. Unlike all of else, all the other aspects of creation, it was man that was created in the image and likeness of God, according to Genesis. Meaning that as God exists in a triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you also exist in three distinct parts. You have a physical body, an immaterial soul, and a spirit. Let me give you just a biblical example of this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, 
the Apostle Paul writes the following. He says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then he adds, That your whole spirit, soul, and body, you, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me define these three things. First, the, the body is the physical part of a person. It's your matter. It's what tethers you to the physical world. We know scientifically, in biology, that the body, therefore, because it is the physical you, also includes some interesting things. Part of the physical you includes the mind. It's where your thoughts are, your emotions are, your feelings are. Chemical reactions, physical things happening. This would also include your genetic traits, your DNA, including those tendencies that come from them. Your personality is part of your physical nature. <laughs> Sometimes given to you by parents. And you see it often, right? When you act like them. Why am I acting like my dad? Well, half of you is him. Genetically, it's a material. It includes your habits, your predispositions. So the body's the, the physical you. The soul, in direct contrast to that, is the non-material essence of a person's being. It's the non-material. In many ways, the soul is the real you. And therefore, because it's not material, it continues after the material dies. Once the physical person passes away, you haven't died. Why? Because you are more than flesh and blood. Within the soul dwells your consciousness. Your will, it's where decisions are made. Paul cautions Timothy. He, he writes 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. And he says something interesting. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of deeming, speaking lies and hypocrisy. This is what's interesting. He says, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. We know that this, the soul, you, well, it's impressionable. Lastly, the spirit is the part of a person that provides life to both the body and the soul. In regards to the soul, the spirit tethers you to God. As it pertains to the body, the spirit includes the seed of your desires, your nature, or what is referred to kind of in an allegorical sense, the heart, your heart. We'll see this, Leviticus 17, verse 11, we're told, for the flesh, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Because everyone is born with a fallen nature. Well, what that means is that we've received life through the human spirit provided to us by Adam. Because of this, we all immediately experience the results of sin in our mortal bodies, the physical effects of sin leading to death. Because you've been given this fallen nature, your body's going to die. It's corrupted. We all experience the results of sin in our mortal bodies, but we also experience it in our souls. Our bodies will die a physical death, but our souls, because of the spirit we've been given from Adam, it will also die an eternal death because of the separation from God. It's why you find in passages like Ephesians 2 verse 1 or Colossians 2 13 that describes you and I in a particular state as being dead in our trespasses and our sins. And yet, what's glorious about the gospel, is that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, an amazing, supernatural, spiritual work occurs in your life. What is described as the old man, or the spirit 
of sin given to you by Adam, it ends up getting replaced with what the Bible says is a new man, the Holy Spirit given to you by Jesus. So what was given to you by Adam gets replaced by something given to you by Jesus. The spirit of death gets replaced with the spirit of life. That's why you become alive spiritually. Literally, we call this being born again. That's why we use this phrase. You know, when we ask someone, you know, we encourage a sinner, ask Jesus to come into your heart. That, that, this is what we're trying to get at. Practically, we're encouraging an individual to ask Jesus to replace their sinful nature, which is dead, this dead spirit, with a righteous one, the living Holy Spirit. That's when regeneration, rebirth, when God takes what was dead and replaces it with his spirit, which is very much alive. And this idea, by the way, is reinforced all throughout Scripture. Let me just give you, because it's foundational, a couple of examples. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and put what? A new spirit within you. In Romans 8, 2, Paul declares, the spirit of life in Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In his earlier letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul will pin in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. He says, since by man, and he's referring to Adam, came death, by man, and this is a capital M, speaking of Jesus, came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You see how this starts to tie together? When the supernatural work of God manifests because of God's grace, not something you do, but something you receive that He did. Grace being extended, two things result. First, immediately, your soul. The real you that's been separated from God since birth because of the fallen nature imparted to you by Adam. You, the, the soul, you, it gets reconciled with God. Reconnected to God. Through Jesus, for one reason. Because God comes and dwells in you. The Holy Spirit. What was dead becomes alive immediately when you receive His grace. What was dead is alive through Christ, through the Spirit. In 1 Peter 1 verse 9, this result, Peter describes as the obtaining of the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your soul. The second thing that happens is that because you have the Spirit of God, this new life inside of you indwelling the seed of desire, which is what the Spirit is all about, the physical body, well, your desires, they're no longer controlled by a sin nature, they're controlled by the Spirit of God, which means that naturally, so the first thing that happens when I receive God's grace, I get retethered to God. The Holy Spirit comes inside of me. But because now the Spirit's inside of me, the second thing that begins to change is me. It's what I do begins to change. What I, have, you, have you ever noticed that? that? That you want new things when you come to Christ. You give your life to Jesus, and the things that you, your life was so oriented around no longer interest you. Why? Because you have a different spirit a different life, a different desire. You now want to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. It's an amazing thing. 
naturally, Christ-likeness results, behavioral change. And yet, if we're being honest, this change doesn't come without a, a bit of resistance. And where does the resistance come from? Well, it comes from your body. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit given to you by God's grace. Changing who you are. It's tethered your soul back to Him. It's made you as a result righteous, justified, sinless, a son, an heir. That spirit has control over the body. Why? Because the flesh resides in the seat of desires. And yet, the literal effects of sin in your body still remain. This is why you have attention. You see, the flesh, or what some call self, is actually nothing more, in my opinion, than a reference to the unregenerated, mortal, physical body, which still remains tainted with and corrupted by sin and death. Unlike the soul, unlike the spirit, because it's part of the physical, natural world, your body, the Bible says, it's still dying. And it's still awaiting a final regeneration at a future resurrection. You're still experiencing and will experience the effects of sin being death, physically. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but it'll be raised in incorruption. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. While you've been filled with the Spirit, making you right with God, your soul, your body, well, it's still awaiting redemption. You know, historically speaking, scholars have always been hesitant to define the flesh in such a simplistic way as being just the physical body. But to be fair, that perspective has mainly been driven by an incomplete understanding as to what all the body controls. What is all involved in the physical man? DNA. It's changed the entire way. The physical you. To the point people now argue if there is anything beyond the physical you. In the Greek, the word translated flesh, it's sarx, S-A-R-X. And it refers to the soft substance of the living body, which covers the bones, it's permeated with blood. But today we know scientifically that the physical body of man, including the mind, overarching genetics, it covers your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your personality, your habits, your predispositions. All of which, my friend, are still experiencing the effects of sin because they're waiting for resurrection. Now, those things aren't you. You're the soul, but you're still dealing with a body. What this means is that the battle that Paul is describing between the flesh and the spirit is actually two completely contrary forces under the directive of my soul or my will. On one side, there is my physical body, the flesh, still corrupted by sin, and one that by its very constitutions still wants to pursue self-pleasure. But on the other hand, there is now the supernatural, the Holy Spirit residing in my, desi in my desires, wanting and seeking and pursuing to use my body as an instrument of righteousness. So the Spirit wants to use my body as an instrument of righteousness, and my body's like, no! I want to do what I want! And you have this tension. 
In Romans 6, verse 13, Paul builds on the idea. He says, and do not present your members. He's literally talking about your literal body. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Who's doing the presenting? You. The soul. You have to make a choice. You know, ultimately, the battle that we all experience as Christians rests in a decision of our will. And I think we know that, right? You can either choose to surrender control of your body to the influence of the Holy Spirit so that you can now live consistent with that new nature you've been given by God's grace, or you can choose to allow the physical body to function as it naturally will, corrupted by sin, (laughs) because your body's really good at sinning. Now, what makes this experience different than the one that we had before regeneration? So why the change? Why the tension, right? Well, keep in mind that before you came to Jesus, before you experienced His grace, the body of sin and the spirit of sin that you got from Adam, well, they worked together. The old man and your body, man, they worked in harmony, which explains why you did not have any struggle sinning. You might not have been good at a lot, But man, you're a real good sinner. And yet now that the old man is out of the picture being crucified with Jesus, now that he's been replaced by a new man providing you a new nature, the indwelling spirit, there is a conflict. The tension occurs following regeneration because our flesh corrupted by sin is under the control of the spirit. Our bodies are no longer free to operate as they naturally would or they shouldn't be. Because our desires are not driven by the old man, but by the new. We have a new master. Meaning the flesh corrupted by sin, it's in constant tension with a spirit desiring righteousness. Again, Paul will write in Romans 8, verses 11 through 13. He says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you, the soul, live according to the flesh, the body, you're, you will die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you, the soul, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Are you beginning to see why the license to ill perspective of grace is so fundamentally flawed? With every decision that you make, your soul the real you that's, made a, that's been made alive in Jesus right before God, who's sinless before the throne, you have to choose between the body's natural tendencies towards and inclinations to sin, which is, by the way, to act contrary to who you actually are, because that's not you. Or you have to choose the surrendering of your body to the control of the Holy Spirit, this new power inside of you. The only way you even have the choice to begin with is because of God's grace, something Jesus did for you. Every single aspect of your life is subjected to the battle between the flesh and its natural dispositions and proclivities to sin and the contrary desires of the Holy Spirit to live right and to be holy before God, which is why Paul exhorts those who've experienced God's grace to do what? He says, friends, I say then... Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
the lust, the desire, the craving, the longing. That word walk, it literally means, think of it this way, as, as to live in. Live in the Spirit. It, de- it describes someone who's reconstituted their life. They're choosing a new way to live. You see, by exhorting us to walk in the Spirit, Paul's not talking about a one-time decision, but a new way of operating. Understand, even after being filled with the Holy Spirit, your flesh will seek self-satisfaction. Your flesh still desires what is carnal. And yet it's important you know the remedy for overcoming those tendencies, those desires of the flesh. Well, it's simple. Choose, my friend, to walk in the Spirit. The soul, make a choice to walk in the Spirit. Knowing that you are more than flesh and blood, you are a righteous child. If you don't want to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, well, make the daily choice to walk in the Spirit. I hope you can see why Hannah Brown's statement that regardless of anything she's done, she can do whatever, sin daily and Jesus still loves her, why that's so warped? Yes, it's true. She has been washed. And that it's all forgiven. I'd even agree that Jesus still loves her. And yet, when a person truly experiences God's grace and God's love, they'll never have a cavalier attitude towards what's sinful. Instead, they will have a deep humility knowing that the grace I've been given and the love of God I've received, yes, it's free for me. All I have to do is receive it. But it costs Jesus everything. It cost Jesus everything. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross to forgive Hannah of sin and liberate her from the debt of death so that she could turn around and sex it up with a guy in a windmill free of guilt. That ain't why Jesus died on the cross. So you can get some hanky-panky on a TV show. That's not why you've been saved and liberated. Using grace as an excuse to engage in the very sin that Jesus died to free you from, it's insulting. His work on the cross intends to fill us with His Spirit. Why? So that we can resist the lust of the flesh, not succumb to it. Back to the Beastie Boys. What so many people don't know about their debut album was that in a twist of genius, the cover to License to Ill, specifically imagined by Rick Rubin, designed by Steve Byram, rendered by David Gamble, it was designed, it was imagined to exemplify the perspective of many disenfranchised youth in the late 80s and to illustrate where they viewed, where they saw society heading. On the front cover of License to Ill, You had a depiction of the legendary Boeing 720 that was known as the Starship, famously used by Led Zeppelin as their primary mode of transportation during their 1973 and 1975 North American tours. One commentator described the Starship as a flying grotto. You can imagine Zeppelin in the 70s. The airplane had a fully stocked bar, multiple televisions, revolving armchairs, low couches, and of course, private rooms 
which were complete with fur bedspreads and showers, even fireplaces. The starship had become a symbol of the rock star lifestyle of excess and depravity. What's interesting about the front cover was that it intentionally was designed to only present half of the image. What at first seemed like an ode to ultimate freedom, the starship, an airplane flying high. Well, it instantly turns dark when you open up the cover to see that this plane had actually crashed into the side of a mountain. That's the inside of the cover. Now, when you consider how many famous bands had tragically died in plane crashes during the 60s and 70s, Leonard Skinner as one example, the idea what's being depicted, well, the irony wasn't lost on anyone. Not only did the artwork to License to Ill reinforce this right to party depicted by the starship, but in a twist, the cover was also honest as to where that right would ultimately lead. Culture may have been flying high, but there was an understanding that a crash and a burn was coming. Aside from this, the image of the plane crash highlighting this growing anxiety of the culture, what they were experiencing in the late 80s, the, the graphic also creatively illustrated kind of the nihilistic attitude that many had towards prospects. If you turn the artwork to its side, the image of the crashed plane was designed to depict a smoldering joint. Here's the point. If you view grace as a license to ill and use grace to fight for your right to party, I say this with a tenderness. I say this with self-reflection. But there is an equal reckoning on your horizon. God's grace is not about the sinful behaviors that it allows. God's grace it's the mechanism by which our behaviors become godly. Grace is not about doing what your flesh wants to do. Grace is about walking in the Spirit of God and allowing the incredible love and the incredible favor of God to change you and transform you and to make you into what your flesh wasn't. More like Jesus. Paul closes out this section in Galatians 5 by presenting a warning we'd be all wise to consider he says, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit or where God's grace intends to produce from your life. What's love, peace, joy, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law, that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. And then he says this, he says, if we live or are made alive in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. You can't walk if it wasn't for God's grace. So allow God's grace to yield the walk it intends to.
So, Father, Lord, we thank you for that word.